So here we are, it's still the present moment. Only this one is labelled Dharma Talk. Um, so I'll be speaking for the next session on some uh, some points of Dharma. Um, I realise I've not, you know, it's it's quite common to to do the Dharma talks in the evening after after tea, and uh, this is I think this is the first retreat where I've I mean other people have done this, but giving the Dharma talk at this time, and so you're quite lucky because I can't overrun too much because uh, <laughs> we I've just realised you know the tea the tea bell is uh, it's going to save you from. I get carried away <laughs> but it's also a reason for for doing it at this time is kind of connected with the whole purpose of a dharma talk in that it's a it's a way of um, offering some encouragement some reminders and some some contextualization for for what we're doing so hopefully it's something that will sort of feed your practice uh, for the rest of the day and into the evening so really at this point in the retreat I just want to um, maybe draw draw our attention to um, certain things that we may have been noticing and uh, ways of ways of seeing them that might be useful um, it's said in the in the teachings that there are three uh, causes for the arising of understanding um, and the first of these is is the voice of another. So hearing or reading um, teachings from from other people, and then wise reflection, and your own direct experience. So this weekend we we're, we're doing all three of these ways of cultivating of cultivating understanding. Um, so this is this is. Uh, material for your reflection and contemplation so we've been today cultivating this word cultivating this the the heart and mind and cultivating the art of staying present and looking deeply into our experience and with this um, comes the capacity for steadiness and clear seeing and the Buddha taught that uh, there's no greater cause of suffering in the human world than the untrained mind. And when we train the mind, we discover that there's no better friend than a well-trained mind. The well-developed mind becomes, in a way, our, our best friend. But this, this mind is highly sensitive Sort of think of it. It's probably the most sensitive thing that there is. In fact, the the um, as I think Beth was saying, or Alexis was saying that you know we don't distinguish between the the heart the heart and the mind is is kind of uh, one organism. It's not the intellect and the heart split off from one another. So this word jitta chitta, which is the heart mind, is is that which resonates and responds to um, life and to experience and I was thinking it's kind of like a perhaps like a highly sensitive thoroughbred racehorse it needs handling with a lot of care and patience and sensitivity and tenderness Uh, so how do we how do we do this 
So we've been looking at the uh, sixth sense doors and um, becoming aware of what's arising at each of these sense doors. And uh, there's a, a metaphor which I find really helpful around this is um, that these sense doors can be likened to six different animals. So I'm not sure if I'll get these animals precisely right, but say an elephant, uh, a dog, a snake, an eagle, um, a monkey, and uh, say a crocodile, and that they're all kind of linked together, they're all tied together on a rope, but they're all pulling in different directions. The monkey's trying to get into the tree, the eagle's trying to take off into the sky, the elephant's trying to find its way into the jungle, Um, the crocodile's going down to the river, and uh, the dog wants to go into into the town, and they're all kind of pulling us in all these different directions, and it's very exhausting, and nobody kind of gets where they want to go. Um, but when we when we uh, relate with mindfulness, when we bring mindfulness to this situation, it's as if we're planting a firm post into the ground and each of these animals has its own piece of rope attaching it to the post and begins to learn its proper domain for playing so that they can find their way into the situation that is um, wholesome, comfortable, um, and where they can actually rest and in a way um, I I have in in my mind with this I also bring in the image of you know these days uh, we have these stretchy leashes for our dogs okay so that that, or or maybe even children when they're learning to walk so we don't hold them on a tight tight rein but actually um, there's as a kindness to our animals we let them you know, have this kind of stretch, stretching leash that extends a bit. They can go and wander and explore, and we just watch where they're going. And then, uh, you know, if we see them coming to some kind of danger, we can kind of rein it in a bit. And in a way, that's that's how we're relating to to the senses um, in this practice. It's like we're we're allowing them some rein to play, but we're keeping an eye on what's happening. Uh, so we're we're not kind of tightly trying to control everything some of us have um, we've also mentioned um, the possibility of of using an anchor for the intention and uh, some some people in in the group were asking about this um, that we can actually um especially in the beginning when the mind is, 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 gets very scattered or confused, it can be really helpful to um, have, a, have a place that's something that's easily manifesting on, in our awareness that we can return to again, as, again and again as a way of checking in. So something like the breath, for example, or sounds or the sensations in the body. And, you know, if you're used to practicing in this way, then... Um, we, you know we're not we're not saying don't do this so this is a this is a very useful thing but um when we think of of uh, an anchor you know what does what does that do how does an anchor function for a ship at sea it's like when the when the sea is rough the the anchor needs to be quite loose so there's some some play in that and uh we're not again we're not you know, holding tightly to a particular thing or trying to um, clamp our attention to a particular object. This is uh, 
that we allow, we, we have this point of reference that we can check in with. You know, when, we, when we want to be present, just uh, checking, oh, am I, am I aware of breath here? Am I aware of the body here? So something really um, that we can have as a home base that gives us a sense of groundedness and connection in the present. So we're knowing where our attention is and we're knowing how we're paying attention. And then that gives us some choice. So when we become aware that we've, that we've not been aware, you know, this is the becoming aware is more important than the um, than the losing it, and what we're developing by this um, constant returning to awareness, returning to the present, is a kind of suppleness and flexibility of mind, a heart that is soft and malleable, and more available to be responsive, not feeding. Uh, unhelpful patterns and uh, taking preoccupations more lightly so the word divestment comes to mind you know there's a lot of um, talk at the moment about divesting from uh, certain investments and fossil fuels and things and we can think about this as well and divesting from uh, the unhelpful investments of these hearts and minds so we're keeping a really wide open field of awareness um, in order to learn because our laboratory, our classroom is the, the whole of our experience. And within this, there are certain useful things to observe and useful ways of seeing. So one of the things that you might be noticing or you might have noticed that uh, our experience is a constantly changing flow of phenomena. So even right now, if you if you notice what you're aware of right now, uh, there's the changing sounds in the room and the, the sound of my voice, and a changing flow of sensations in the body, and maybe feelings, moods, and thoughts coming and going in response to what you're what you're hearing, what you're seeing, and that this is changing right now and it's changing over time it's like what's happening for you right now is probably different from what was happening at 2:15 or in this in the sitting this morning and then things also may be changing within themselves so the experience may be of feeling your hand right now if you bring attention to the hand it's like what is it to to know that you that you have a hand right now and even that is a it's a constantly shifting target what is this experience of hand and when we bring our awareness to what's going on we start to see this and I find that the the etymology of present moment is something that intrigues me because actually we think of it as something kind of static that we can arrive in but uh, present actually means in front of the senses, moving, and moment means moving. So the present moment is that which is moving in front of the senses right now, which is, uh, yeah, I find that fascinating to contemplate. And then what we call our ourselves, 
the Buddha really pointed this out, that what we call ourselves is actually um, a stream of different, um, or a, yeah, like a river made up of different streams of experience. And he identified these five streams of experience of the body and of feelings. And by feelings here, we mean the feeling tones of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. So that that domain of experience that's constantly changing and the stream of perceptions and the stream of thoughts and emotions and of consciousness, which always is is known um, in conjunction with one of these, with the other streams. And then he said, well, would it be accurate to say that any one of these things is who I am? So we can we can investigate this. We feel our existence. We feel feel our sense of self, but it's changing all the time. And on reflection, the only place that we can identify a, a solid sense of self is as a, as a concept or a view. And yet, um, as we find ourselves lost in thinking or find ourselves thinking, this is usually this the main preoccupation of our thoughts has something to do with me. So I, I had an experience in the the lunch queue today where I was uh, standing in the front of the queue and then the, the bell went and uh, I found myself moving, feeling my body moving, going up to the plates and choosing a plate and then beginning to help myself to the lunch and noticing the colours and thinking, oh, I like that and I'm feeling a little hungry. And and then suddenly at a certain point I became aware that I was at the front of the queue and there was this huge queue of people behind me and they felt like they were they were getting closer and I suddenly had the thought, I'm holding up the whole queue here and... Uh, people are going to be thinking you know what's that teacher doing taking all this time getting her lunch and uh, and I started to to become self-conscious around that and then this I noticed how that quickly led into a sense of me here getting my lunch in a way that hadn't really been present before I'm getting my lunch and I'm potentially doing something wrong and uh, and this is this is a bad person you know I'm 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 indulging in getting my lunch and taking up and and slowing everything down and then we can go into a whole train of proliferation about uh, what a what a bad person I am or what an unworthy person I am and this this happens so frequently in in small ways and in large ways to all of us we can just begin to notice this process happening and it and it's it's a process in nature, as we've been saying. It's not personal. You know, this is this is how the mind condition is conditioned, and then we we kind of take it up, we pick it up, and we we run with it, and we keep re-identifying and re-identifying, and uh, it's painful, and it's it's also optional. Yeah. So the Buddha called this um, this kind of thinking and unwise attention and the way he describes unwise attention I quite like so I'm going to read it to you so a person attends unwisely thinking how was uh, was I in the past was I not in the past what was I in the past 
How was I in the past? Having been what, what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else he's inwardly perplexed about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? So this he, he called this um, being like caught in a thicket or a jungle or a tangle of views. And this, this kind of, this is what happens um, with our thoughts and we get more and more um, stuck into perplexity and concern and the sense of identity gets stronger and stronger and our sense of separation and isolation gets stronger. So this is, a, this is you know, not, to, not to ridicule this, I'm not trying to ridicule this because it's, um, this, is, this is part of our human makeup and part of what the, the untrained mind does and the conditioning is very, is very strong and it's often very painful. But what happens, at least when we become aware of it, is actually we can start to bring some compassion to that, some kindness to that and recognize also recognizing that this is um, part of our common human predicament. And as we see it happening, we can, we can stop feeding it and begin to disentangle ourselves. Because this project of trying to make my self-concept perfect and safe and right and every, and all, all the time is just an impossible, endless task. But yet the delusion of our mind keeps us, keeps us engaging with it. So attending wisely instead... That's unwise attention. Attending wisely means attending to things in such a way that craving diminishes and delusion diminishes and aversion diminishes and so that beneficial mind states grow. And this kind of wise attention, it, it, it comes from actually seeing how things unfold, how one thing feeds another, how one thing conditions another. And the word for it in Pali is, it's called a yoniso manasikara. Manasikara is, a, is attention and yoniso means actually, yoni is the womb. So it's, um, I, I kind of think of it as attention that comes from the belly. It's like really reflecting, attending with your belly, with your gut, right? with your whole embodied presence to what's happening. Or in other words, really reflecting on your direct experience as you're living it. So it's the opposite of what uh, John Lennon, I think, said, life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. How many of us have experienced that? So this is actually um, knowing in one's gut, reflecting, sensing in one's gut what's happening. So our task in this practice is to meet all these different things that are arising in the the flow of experience, um, not with reactivity, which is based on aversion or wanting or delusion, this delusion being that solidifying of, of changing experience into a view of self and taking that into a view of something solid and taking that as then something that we we react against 
So not meeting experience with these reactions, but meeting our experience with mindfulness. And along with mindfulness, our um, part of the mindfulness comes in a family with um, other qualities, and um, one of the the or the main family is what are known as the the spiritual faculties. So this includes also um, the faculty of samadhi or steadiness, calm. So um, you know, meeting meeting things. Um, with steadiness and interest or patience so this is this is the way that I hold energy which kind of balances the calm so there's a balance of calm and energy in this receptive mind Um, and but the energy is it has a quality of interest and a, a quality of persistence. So it's not kind of ramped up energy of like, oh, I'm going to do something about this, but more it's this willingness over and over again, which I've sort of really been observing in, in all of you today, the, the degree to which I've really been seeing you engaging with the practice. So this patient persistence and interest. And then confidence or trust this is really, really valuable to to trust our own capacity to know, to understand, to be with, and to trust trust this practice, trust um, at least the possibility that this is going to um, that that we will that we will see with more clarity what this is about, and understanding this understanding that comes from listening, reflecting and really um, seeing directly what's happening. And the more that we use these faculties, the more that they feed each other and they grow. So it's kind of a positive feedback loop as we do this. And, you know, sometimes we, we have particularly, we feel like we can rest in confidence for some reason. We have, we have trust or faith Sometimes there's a lot of um, maybe interest or understanding arising, whatever. Um, so they, they can be, you know, diff- different faculties can predominate at, at one time, but um, they, they actually, one, one feeds another, so they start reinforcing one another. And the, be- the, the beginning of them all is mindfulness. And this unfolding is a, is a natural process. We've been saying, you know, it unfolds as the causes and conditions are present. So, as a there's a simile that I really like in the suttas about a hen sitting on her eggs, and the Buddha says, you know, if if the hen's sitting there wishing, oh, I wish these chicks would hurry up and hatch out and break out of the shells with their beaks and claws, you know, if it's not time for them to hatch. They're not going to. They're not going to hatch. So she can be sitting there wishing all she likes, but nothing's going to happen. And on the contrary, you know, she can be sitting there and not have any particular wish for them to hatch. But actually, when the time is ripe, the chicks will will start to hatch. So she can think that she's in control of the whole process, but actually, you know, she's not. She's just sitting there warming the eggs, and the eggs will do their thing. And our practice is kind of like that. 
sometimes we can think we're in control. We can think, oh, this, I'm having a really ple pleasant experience here on my meditation cushion. I must be getting something right. And then we come back at the next sitting and we try to do that again and it doesn't work. You know, maybe some of you have had a whiff of that over the course of the last 24 hours. That's, um, you know, it's when, when causes and conditions are in place, things will happen. And when they're not, they won't. And uh, so what we need to learn to do is to develop the causes. There's a, um, a story that Ajahn Sachito, one of my teachers, told about, um, again, with, with his meditation practice, feeling on one retreat that it was really going well and, and having the idea that it was like he was driving a boat and he had finally got the idea of how to drive the boat and he was like, steering this way and that. And, uh, uh, uh. and then at a certain point, he realized that the steering wheel wasn't connected. <laughs> and he was doing all this thing and actually it had really not very much to do with what was happening. That these were just thoughts that were going through his mind about, you know, this is what I'm doing in my practice and this is how it works. And, and actually, you know, this... So this is also, you know, we, see, we can see the thinking that's happening around it, this thinking, this wanting to control, this wanting it to be a certain way. But let's just see it as that and then see what happens. I had an interesting thing about a piece of research um, that was done in, in <coughs> Oxford where I live about um, mindfulness practitioners and um, they were looking at how much pe practice people did when they started practicing mindfulness and you know, how much trust they had in the, in the, um, in the method and how enthusiastic they were. And they discovered that your levels of trust or enthusiasm had nothing to do with outcome. The outcome was actually from how much time you spent practicing. So you could be as enthusiastic and as converted as you liked, but if you didn't actually um, do the practice, you didn't get the benefit. And the people who practiced, even if they were quite skeptical, uh, seemed to get the benefit from it. So related to, related to confidence, I think, in these faculties for me, and, and also related to energy, the word for energy, um, virya, is related to the word for, for hero or heroism in Indo-European languages. And there's an element of courage. So what we're doing requires also the cultivation of courage. And when we just... Um, ask ourselves to be with something just for now and watch the reactions in our mind. This, is, this requires a lot of courage often, you know, just, to, just to stay put with something that's, that's difficult where we would usually go off and do something else or, or numb out. This counterintuitive turning towards what's difficult. It's almost like daring to have an an unknown experience, daring to have a new experience. Because what keeps us trapped in habit often is this, this um, tendency that the mind has to prefer what's familiar over what's unknown, yeah. even when we know that it's not necessarily serving us. So if we can strengthen this ability just to bear with the not knowing or bear with, bear with the un uncomfortable, 
through the cultivation of this ability to to be present you know, we can strengthen strengthen our capacity for uh, freedom and for choice so another thing that you might have noticed today also is um certain very common states of mind that come up in in the meditation practice um Maybe some of you have experienced some sleepiness, perhaps restlessness, maybe a bit of doubt. So these are these are really common mind states that all of us um, experience during meditation, and we can start to see them as as being problems and something to get rid of. And then we're experiencing yet another common mind state that we've <coughs> referred to many times today, which is uh, aversion. You know, thinking that something else should be happening other than what's happening and trying to make something else happen. So if you find yourself experiencing sleepiness, doubt, restlessness, it's really good to check, actually, am I, am I feeding this with aversion or not? Can I just let this be here? This is here because the causes and conditions for it to manifest are here and it will pass in its own time. And there are certain things that we can do if we find ourselves feeling very sleepy. We can open our eyes. We can even stand up. Um, But can we do this without a sense of aversion? We just say, okay, this is sleepiness here. Okay, maybe I'll try opening my eyes. Maybe I'll try standing up. And maybe that will work. Maybe it won't work. But that we don't um, add one thing onto another. If we feel restless, it can be really helpful to just widen, um, widen the scope of awareness. So you could imagine your awareness being like that it expands to maybe be as large as the room or beyond the room, as large as the whole of IMS. And your restlessness is just happening kind of inside the room. So that... Uh, there's, there's a spaciousness around it in which uh, the restlessness doesn't entirely take over the mind. Just see what happens with that. And with doubt, you know, can we just know doubt as doubt? Can we know confusion as confusion? And again, um, you know, not, not feed it. So when, if we don't recognize the doubt, then the doubt starts to dominate the show and it's like, oh, maybe this and maybe that and maybe I should get up and leave the hall or maybe I should stay here or maybe next time I should go out and go for a walk or maybe I should go to my room and lie down and, you know, and, and we can just be swinging between these different options and we're not realizing that we're looking at, the, looking at our whole world through this lens of doubt. But actually, we have the possibility of just seeing, seeing doubt and how does the doubt feel in the body? You know, can I just be with this doubt for a moment or two? And then the the fifth of these these common things: so not wanting what's here to be here, or or wanting something else. So uh, craving for this and that, longing for some kind of sensory distraction. So these are things that arise in all of that all of us and can they just be known rather than seeing them as a problem they're the they're the ground for our practice for our observation for our understanding
And then another thing um, that we can observe is the the changing flow of this pleasant and unpleasant feeling. So what are known as Vedana, the feeling tones of experience. So even right now, you might be aware of some things in the in the field of your awareness that are feeling quite pleasant. So maybe the the softness of the cushion underneath you, maybe the light, the light in the room, the evening light, your breath, coolness. And then there might be other things that are unpleasant, a few aches and pains, sense of restlessness or boredom or anticipation of tea or whatever. And... Just knowing and uh, observing those and then seeing how we get hooked by what's pleasant and what's unpleasant. Can we, can we let that be there without, again, uh, adding aversion or, or longing onto this experience of pleasant and unpleasant that's constantly arising? And we can see that it changes in unexpected ways. So... Often our, our experience of what's pleasant and unpleasant is quite conditioned by expectation or, um, yeah, or perception. So I don't know why I suddenly had this memory, but I, w- I thought of uh, uh, a few years ago I visited my sister who lives in Cambodia. And uh, they seem to have a, a great fashion for um, these pedicures, which are um, you put your feet in a tank of little piranhas some of you might have had this experience you probably have them in some spas in the u.s but you know this this idea that you have your pedicure by putting your feet in a fish tank and your feet get nibbled by the fish and uh, when i first came across this i thought oh that's completely gross i really (laughs) i really don't want to do that it's quite terrifying and and you and then you you think oh well i'll I'll give it a try and at first it's a really it's a really unpleasant experience if you're just thinking oh you know and suddenly you think oh maybe one of them's going to be too big and it's going to take a chunk out of my foot (laughs) or whatever and and yet actually when you begin to once you get you get used to it and you think actually i'm really you know i want to have a good pedicure and then suddenly this weird sensation of these little little nibbly nibbly tickly fish tickling your feet suddenly becomes oh this is quite pleasant and then you're sitting there and you think well you know where are they all gone and you know when's another fish going to come and and have a nibble so it's just it's very interesting or another experience I've had of uh, you know being bitten by an ant I don't know whether any of you have noticed that that's one of the it feels that it's an ant bite can feel really excruciating in the moment it happens and then but then afterwards I found that the sensation actually changes and maybe it's when the body releases endorphins or something but actually something that we initially experience as unpleasant can turn out to surprise us and be quite pleasant and the other thing can happen the other way around you know maybe with choosing something to eat and we're anticipating it to be very pleasant and then actually it turns out to be the other way or you can do this actually because we have we have tea coming up next maybe noticing how we we start eating we take a mouthful and it's initially very very pleasant and then as we chew it and you know, and as that experience progresses, if we stay long enough with it, we actually find a point at which it it ceases to be 
so pleasant. It ceases to be interesting. And often what we've done is we've, we've taken another mouthful before. As soon as we, oh, this is really nice, let me have another mouthful. And we kind of going, you know, we, we just go through without really noticing what's happening. So when I, I was a, um, a nun for some years, a, a Buddhist nun, and uh, we had the, one of the tra- there are many training rules about how you eat your food and your meals. But one of the the training rules that was actually quite useful for developing this mindfulness was a, that you don't make up a mouthful of food until you finish the one before. So you really have time to notice you know, what it's like to actually finish eating a mouthful before you go on to the next one. And because often we we miss out on the experience of satisfaction that's available to us when something completes, because we're kind of, you know, jumping into the the next thing. So you have lots of opportunities for this eating meditation here for for mindful eating, and uh, just seeing what happens. Same thing with sounds, you know, we can expect, we can anticipate sounds or not anticipate sounds and sometimes unexpected sounds will be unpleasant just by virtue of their unexpectedness. And then familiar sounds might be soothing to us. And then also what do we add in terms of thinking that certain sounds should or shouldn't be happening So I remember being on retreat once in this hall and there was an announcement about at the beginning from the managers about not having, if you have beeping watches, to turn your beeping watches off. And then uh, one yogi had a a watch that beeped every day at lunchtime to remind him that it was lunchtime. And this was often after people had left the hall, but it was a long retreat. So some people would like to carry on sitting and carry on and would be very peaceful. And then suddenly this yogi's watch would go off. And so you hear the sound of the watch. And, and then I could see my mind doing this thing. Well, he was told to turn his watch off and he can't hear it. So, so it was somebody who he couldn't, couldn't actually hear that his watch was going off. And this would happen day after day after day. And I could see myself building this whole story of, uh, I can't stand this anymore. I'm going to have to go to the managers and go to the teachers and it really shouldn't be happening. And all because there was this perception that this is somehow shouldn't be happening. But it was a short, you know, a few beeps in the hall at lunchtime. What was the problem with that? Uh, So can we come back in these kinds of instances? Can we just come back to this simple experience of hearing? Body sensations is another one. So we have an unpleasant body sensation and then we, we identify it as pain. This shouldn't be happening. And then we can add the whole, the whole story that it's, if my meditation were, were good, this wouldn't be happening. If I got my posture right, this wouldn't be happening. You know? And building, building this sense of aversion. We can believe that, uh, that good, good practice means that there'll be no more pain, that there'll be no more physical pain. But what if, what if the end of dukkha uh, doesn't mean the end? 
say, of physical pain, but actually as a, a way of finding freedom and ease within what's happening, within the, pleasant, the flow of pleasant and unpleasant experience, yeah, within the flow of uncomfortable or comfortable body sensations. This is what we're doing here, is we're, we're finding out for ourselves what's possible in the way of freedom. Somebody asked me, what does freedom mean? You know, we, we find this out for ourselves. The desire for, for peace, for freedom, is, is a universal desire. The times of, in the time of the Buddha, people would um, describe this as trying to find a, that. So the, the, world, uh, the world of the suffering and the unsatisfactoriness of the world was like being caught in a raging flood. And people would say, well, where do, I, where do I find an island? Where do I find the place of safety, of peace, um, of freedom from the flood and the storm? So there's a, a story in the suttas of a, a group of, of students, of sort of elite students who came to see the Buddha with their teacher and were asking him this question. And... Uh, I'm going to read a couple of the things that he said to him, said to them by way of closing. So one of the students said to the Buddha, "Master, I so much want to hear you speak. Please explain to me, can a student of your teachings find the peace of nirvana for himself?" Any student of my teaching, said the Buddha, who is eager, intelligent and aware, here and now, can find the calm of cessation for himself. And then the student says, I can see that you are a great sage and one who has understood and has found freedom. I bow down and honor you, sir, the eye that sees everything. Please free me from my confusion. And the Buddha says, it's not in my practice to free anyone from confusion. When, you've understood that the most, when you have understood the most valuable teachings, then you yourself will cross the ocean. And another student asked him, how do we, how do we cross the ocean? How do we find our way to the island? And he replied, Lose the greed for pleasure. So just notice that he doesn't say lose pleasure. He says lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There's nothing that you need to hold on to and nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not cling to the present then you can go from place to place in peace. So, it's just an invitation to contemplate or reflect on that. It's, I, I've kind of used these, these are very, to me these are very kind of inspiring, inspiring things, but we kind of hold them in the mind a bit like a koan, like a riddle. You know, that we, we have to feel our way into what this is meaning. 
into what this says, rather than it's not something that we can really figure out intellectually because then we get into all kinds of knots. But actually, you know, what, what in your experience over this weekend is pointing to some truth in this? Or what does this reflect? So lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of the world is peacefulness. There's nothing that you need to hold on to and there's nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your, for your future. If you do not cling to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. So if that inspires you, then you can hold that in mind. If you find that profoundly confusing, then please let it be, let it go. And it's just about supper time. So I'm just going to end by reading, reading you a poem um, by way of kind of, I think this is like an after-dinner chocolate, some uh, heart medicine for those of you who find, uh, find that poetry helps you feel your way into something. So this is called Dreaming the Real by Linda France. I'm lying down, looking up, the colour of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale, so the day could breathe itself in, and open without me standing in the way. How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, all of its shades of grey. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin. And to master the art of loving it. And feel it love me back under my skin. So let's just sit for a minute Thank you for your attention. Enjoy your tea. And just a reminder to the two groups that have um, meetings with Alexis and Beth at 6.15. That's before the next bell. So you'll need to monitor your own time.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.